Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. Got a group of medical students that have all been with me before. Uh, let's start off with introductions. I'm Jamin, I'm a fourth year medical student from Rocky Vista. I'm Rhett, I'm a third year medical student from the same university. I'm Cam, I'm a fourth year medical student from RVU. Hi guys, good to have you with us today again. Uh, Jamin, your last day with us. Sad, but it's been a fantastic <laughs> month and a half. I can hurt you, but I can't stop the clock. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I wish you could. I'd love to hear. I'm glad you had a good experience. I sincerely hope so. This is a, a wonderful place to work with people that have schizophrenia. Love being here. Uh, I think I have the best patients in the world, and I have the best students in the world. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, so this, this topic, tell me, Jamin, how this started to evolve. Yeah, so... Um Right from day one, you, you ask us to think of podcasts, and I've probably had 20 or so that we didn't do. More. <laughs> probably. And it seemed like uh, each of them, what I was really interested in, interested in is uh, the physiology of schizophrenia, because we just aren't taught very much about it in medical school, and the different models of what is going on. Um, in the brain, what is going on with the genetics, what is going on with the different receptors, the different neurotransmitters, and what can explain right what we're seeing. Because right now all we have is basically clinical diagnoses for these individuals, but we know there's something deeper than that. We just haven't really gotten to it yet for these patients. And so that's kind of what led me to the articles we're going to talk about today. So definitely, I, I want to add just a little bit. We, we definitely don't have an easy way of teaching schizophrenia in, as a preceptor. I don't, I should say. right? I, I can say, gosh, there are a lot of risk factors. There's some things that seem to be happening. There might be some genes associated with this. There's some, you know, you can mention a million things about schizophrenia, it seems like. But to really have a, a unifying theory is, seems very, very challenging. And... And I think, in a sense, some of these articles that we're looking at try to unify some of the different things we've talked about, all the way from the podcast we did very early in this series with Phil about the pathophysiology of schizophrenia to now. Now, to, to set the table a little further, I think what I asked you to look for were biomarkers when we started talking about this topic originally. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, I made a pretty big mistake. Um, I don't think I understood the difference between a biomarker and maybe a diagnostic test. Okay. So some of the things that I think we talked about and some of the articles that we generated between us talk about diagnostic tests or ways to diagnose schizophrenia. And other things that we're dealing with seem to address um, biomarkers. And just to set the table a little further, so I, as I realized that, that I had kind of made this I don't know if it's a colossal mistake, but sort of this aha moment of, ah, you know, just because you can use something to diagnose a condition doesn't mean it's a biomarker, right? Yeah. So, so let's, I'm, I'm going to go back to 1999. There was actually a, a meeting. The FDA had this seminar series, and in the middle of this seminar series, there's a video that you can actually watch. It's two and a half hours long if I'm if I'm looking at this correctly, and I, I kind of got it tabbed, I might actually try and watch it later today. We'll see how, how things work out. And it said that a biomarker, it made this decision, that a biomarker is a characteristic that is 
objectively measured and evaluated as an indicator of normal biological processes, pathological process, or uh, pharmacological response to a therapeutic intervention. So a biomarker would be something that maybe gives us a hint that something is not right, and then the therapeutic intervention, as we track that biomarker, would tell us that um, we're having clinical response, so to speak. And so I thought that was really important. Now, that's different than diagnosis, right? And, and we've all talked about diagnosis of schizophrenia a little bit before. And uh, who wants to tackle that? I told you guys I was going to throw you a couple of curveballs here. I'll, uh, I'll take this curveball and leave the curve, other curveballs to everybody else. <laughs> um, now I just need to make sure my brain doesn't go blank. But uh, so in terms of uh, diagnosing schizophrenia, it is a clinical diagnosis based off of five, five main observations. Uh, there has to be uh, three, I believe, of the five of the list. And so uh, they usually are as follows, uh, hallucinations, um, let's see, delusions, uh, positive symptoms, um, as well as negative symptoms and disorganized thoughts slash behaviors. So I want to add one more thing. Um, which is the time. Oh, yes, that's right. So timing, they have to be present for over six months. And we could get into the nuts and bolts, but over six months, that's classic schizophrenia. And I wanted to point out exactly those things with the additional note that between one month and six months is schizophreniform, mm -hmm. and up to one month is a brief psychotic disorder. Right? And, and one other caveat, and that is that Somebody might have all of these symptoms, but still maintain healthy relationships, healthy work habits, um, and, and not necessarily meet the criteria for schizophrenia. There has to be the impairment in function that, that is. Yeah. Uh, and we were just talking about, you, you see that in a lot, of, uh, a lot of different things in mental health, like how do you define an alcoholic? It's not an amount of drinks, right? It's not liver failure or some easy measurable thing. It's, it's more did it ruin your life yeah or did it right. affect your life enough it did it affect function right yep. exactly yeah because if it doesn't not not don't an, really not touch it yeah um so so i think we there are maybe four or five different pathways to look at this and i think most of these different pathways when we're looking at biomarkers for schizophrenia um, or diagnostic testing for schizophrenia they fall very very broadly into a couple of areas one seems to be the EEG area. Another area seems to be some sort of blood test that might include some assay of proteins or genes. Uh, and then another one might be... Your MRS. MRS and imaging, right? So those were... And then uh, maybe the most simple and perhaps the most well-researched, just looking at somebody's eyes, right? <laughs> Which I've so, never heard of till yesterday when you said it to us. So, so physical exam stuff. All right, so let's start off with, uh, uh, how about if we start off with the, the eyes, the physical exam? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I hadn't heard of this till just yesterday. Um, but it looks like the physical exam, a lot of patients with schizophrenia have some unique eye movements, some strabismus. And the thing that's jumped out the most to me when looking into that is uh, people who were born 
without sight have a very low risk for schizophrenia. But those that lose their vision later have the same risk um, of schizophrenia that the general population does. Yeah, I was intrigued by the nystagmus. Right, so that seemed to be the one that really stood out the most. About, uh, what, 50-80% of the people that end up having schizophrenia have nystagmus. Um, interestingly enough, and this I think fits with some of the other biomarkers that we'll talk about or genetic tests that we'll talk about, there seems to be a lot of overlap with bipolar disorder. Um, so about 40% of the people that have bipolar disorder also have this nystagmus on uh, smooth, pursuit, uh, smooth pursuit eye movements. And then, uh, you know, about 10% of the population has it also. So I don't think it's a sensitive or a specific test. It doesn't become a, a diagnostic test for us, which is a challenge, right? Yeah. The sensitivity and specificity are not there. One of the things that I thought was very interesting, though, was there was a, a group, I want to say in Sweden, who took mothers with schizophrenia, and the children that were born to those mothers, they started tracking eye movements at age four, and there seemed to be um, children who had eye difficulties. I'm not even sure if it was uh, just nystagmus. I think it was across the board. There seemed to be difficulties in vision in, in people who have schizophrenia, and we might tie that together a little later. Um, but uh, there seemed to be a substantial difference or a significant difference, statistically speaking, between the children who had visual uh, you know, something, some sort of pathology showing up in the eye at age four and those that weren't and the rate of schizophrenia in those children. I thought that was fascinating. So they followed them till they were 22 and it was Sweden. And yeah, they found having a decreased acuity in that group decreased was actually acuity. pretty, uh, pretty predictive. Very, yeah, I, I don't know how predictive. I didn't see sensitivity or specificity. What I saw was there was a significant difference between the kids who didn't and did in terms of development of schizophrenia. Other things that showed up in that article that I thought were very fascinating, corneal temperatures, right? So if we had a way to uh, check corneal temperatures, uh, perhaps that would help us with the diagnosis. I didn't see uh, temperature cutoffs. I didn't see sensitivity specificity again. Um, other things like blinking rates, right? And, and we see a few patients on the unit that mm -hmm. seem to blink, and we notice they're blinking, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be as often a blinking. It seems to be a, maybe a longer blink. So I, I, things, I, things that kind of fascinated me that, uh, who knows, maybe we'll come to later. Well, and then as is tradition, uh, when none of us should have cats, came up in the same article mm -hmm. with yes. the toxoplasma gondii. Yeah, that was an interesting association between the, the effects of that intracellular beast? <laughs> is it a microbe? Or is it uh, parasitic? Yeah, parasitic. Yeah, and and uh, the kinds of effects we see on the eyes, right? It seems to have a lot of overlap. Mm. Seems like we've mentioned that before, haven't we? <laughs> we've brought up the cats before. <laughs> uh, imaging. I think we'll probably spend a little less time here. It seems a little murkier to me compared to some of the other things. Um, I've had so many people say to me, well, why can't I just get an MRI or a CAT scan to tell me whether or not I have schizophrenia? And I kind of go, ah. So we know, I think we know, that there seems to be a reduction in gray matter in people who have schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. But that, that's like, if you were to scan somebody and look for that reduction, 
it doesn't tell you that they have schizophrenia or not, right? This no. isn't sensitive or specific in any manner, as far as I can tell. Well, and it also, whether you have schizophrenia or not, that changes with age as well. So it, it, even, that even adds another component, right, of this is not consistent at all, right? Not everyone who ages is going to have schizophrenia, but if you were just looking at that gray matter, right, that's what you would... That's what your your model would suggest. Yeah, it's, and, and I think the variation and the changes in gray matter are enough that it, it, we just can't use it to say who has schizophrenia and who doesn't. Yeah. I was intrigued, um, one of the articles, and, and I think this is one of the true challenges of research with schizophrenia is such a, we, we think that schizophrenia is not one condition, but many conditions that have some pathways that lead to some sort of glutamate or dopamine model. We're gonna talk about those a little more later. Um, and, uh, see, I just got, uh, I just had our computer guy outside the window and, and I'm totally lost my chain, train of thought. Um, I think the challenge with some of the, the imaging or the, the idea that there's different models for schizophrenia means that when we find signals, we need to figure out which schizophrenia type it is and the reproducibility of this this research becomes very challenging because we're looking for very subtle signals that we can then refine what we're looking at and looking for, the yeah. way I understand the literature. No, I think that's spot on. The other one uh, on that same idea that Rhett and I were talking about is when they were looking at um, some of the genetic associations, they would find other family members had the same changes in the cortex. They had the same change in auditory signaling but they didn't have schizophrenia. So we're, there's something here, but it is by no means <laughs> it's not like getting an A1C. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, I, I think there's some other findings. I don't remember these very well because I, don't, I can't practically use them. I think uh, is in large ventricle size associated with schizophrenia? If I remember back to board preparation, I believe that, yeah, increased ventricular size within the brain is, is pretty pathognomonic for boards. <laughs> for boards, yeah. But not <coughs> Clini necessarily. Yeah, I, I clinically, it probably is, it, uh, isn't a great way to go about it. Again, I, I've been looking at sensitivity and specificity, and I really have a tough time. I think the best article I ran across said that, hey, there might be two types of schizophrenia based on imaging. Again, I think this is... Uh, I think there might be more than two types. I'm going to go out on a limb there. And what they said, though, is that there's a reduced gray matter type and then there's a striatal type. So maybe as we cut out the striatal type of schizophrenia who have increased um, increased size of the striatum, mm -hmm. I think is the way they said this. And, and if you start looking at uh, patients with schizophrenia that way, you now have 80% sensitivity and 80% specificity uh, on diagnosis, but again, that, that leaves us quite a ways away from what I think is a helpful test, right? I, it's been a while since I've looked at sensitivity and specificity, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not helpful yet, but maybe getting closer. I think that you've got three medical students that would, would probably support you in that idea. So Which idea that it's been too long since I've been to medical school <laughs> and I don't know how to no, uh, no, understand the, the statistics of, of, of medicine. Or, yeah, okay. no, sure. <laughs> um, proton uh, spectroscopy, one other imaging article that we ran across, seemed to make the case that maybe if you can look at glutamate um, in certain parts of the brain, 
um, you might be able to have some ability to determine if somebody has schizophrenia or not. I, I didn't have a good sense for sensitivity and specificity in that article in terms of how it would help us diagnose, nor did I see anything that talked about this as a potential biomarker to measure response. I don't know if you saw anything along those lines. So I think I'm looking at that article and, I mean, they have a trend, right, if you look at their graphs, but no, the confidence intervals are so close to each other that you'd be uncomfortable using that, or you should be uncomfortable using that to diagnose an individual. Now, I, I think where those sensitivity and specificities become more acceptable is if I have a high likelihood of suspicion, but there's a few things that don't fit, mm -hmm. right? And I'm really just looking for something to kind of push me one way or the other. Because you have a very similar thing um, with GI doctors and Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, right? In boards, we're taught they have very clear distinctions, but they don't in reality. I mean, some patients don't in reality. So if we're going to do a colectomy, we better be really sure which one they have because it's not curative in one and it is in the other. And so they will use these really expensive genetic tests and they're not perfect, but if they're trying, if they're in the middle and they're trying to push themselves one direction, that does have some value for them. Interesting. And I, I would even go as far to say that even in uh, emergency medicine, I, I know that I have hit this topic multiple times, but um, we use tests like that with, you know, some moderate sensitivity and specificity in order to help us push to that clinical suspicion or at least highlight that. So I don't think that it's uncommon. It might be a faux pas in preclinical medicine because you need to think about a multitude of different factors. But I think that in clinical medicine, it gets a little bit murkier because you don't have the nice, beautiful little box that you can throw all of your diagnoses in. There's a lot of, of overlap between them. It seemed to get a lot harder um, when I left <laughs> medical school. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll agree with that. Uh, let's let's change gears a little bit. Um, blood tests. Now let's let's start with maybe something along the lines of diagnostic or predictive. Um, I, one of the very significant activities that's taking place in psychiatry, from my viewpoint is the idea of potentially identifying um, young uh, children, adolescents, who are at high risk for development of schizophrenia. I know that there's a lot of work in this field and, and how, how well we identify and then how we tackle that. Huge questions. And it seems to me that one of the, one of the best ways to go about this might be having a sense of uh, a polygenic risk score. Yeah. What did you, you guys read about polygenic risk scores? Um, so before we jump to that, I just wanted to bring up why that would matter. Because um, for me at first, I thought, you know, when they present, they present and we'll treat them. But the advantage here is one of the best indicators of successful outcomes is were they caught early. So I think that's why it's really valuable is if they're on, if you see children on the line, right, we don't want to just throw them into treatment they don't need. But if we had something else that could push our clinical suspicion, right, now it might be worth all these interventions to try and improve their outcomes. I mean, just speaking very generally, and, and again, the costs on this, I don't fully have a sense of weighing. I once had somebody tell me that schizophrenia is an illness that we, we invest as a society a tremendous amount of dollars into an individual who then is essentially lost to us as soon as we've 
we've finished the investment, right, high school. And it's after that that schizophrenia uh, evolves. Many of um, our citizens that develop schizophrenia have a difficult time finding, holding down jobs, uh, having successful relationships, and contributing to society in a way that if we could change that, and I think of the stress diathesis model as the easy target maybe, um, perhaps we, we take somebody out of that life that is perhaps less rewarding to them and switch them over to a life that is more rewarding, potentially more rewarding, at least would seem so to me. I, I guess this is judgmental in part on my, my, my side of things. Um, and then opens up this possibility of having uh, a taxpayer, so to speak. And I, I don't want to sound so crass, but, but I mean, any time we can have a more productive society, I think that's a, a great thing. And um, when we can reduce the mortality and morbidity, I think that's a great thing. So I think this polygenic risk score is maybe the way to approach that. I think so. And yet, <laughs> we're missing a few things. So, so I want to point out that we're not going to talk about maybe genome-wide association studies. Um, but as I understand this, there are now groups of consortiums, I think is the, the buzzword for groups of people that have collaborated with their um, genetic testing. They have populations in various countries where they've um, tracked all sorts of uh, conditions have a full uh, genome for uh, the people that they're tracking, and then they keep track of these people through a lifetime. So, so these groups of investigators that have their own genome group, so to speak, they, they get together and they form consortiums. One of the bigger consortiums is the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, apparently started by uh, uh, somebody at UNC, and I, I forget his name at this point. Um, fascinating, fascinating article and history. Wikipedia has a little bit of information. You can go to his website at UNC and uh, read a little bit more about how they founded the consortium and the kinds of things that they're trying to publish. And they have a number of articles that have been published in, in really our best journals, Natural, Nature, Scientific American, and so forth. Um, so, so this collaborative effort um, the article said, as I tracked this, and I can't remember if this is one you shared with me, um, we have this heritability gap, I think was the, the phrase he used, or missing heritability. So we know from twin studies, concordances somewhere around, what, 40 to 60 percent? Does that sound familiar? That does. Yeah. And I think that shows up on boards, uh, usually somewhere around 50 percent is the number that you'll see. I would say that's a high yield fact. That's yeah. a high yield fact. I've, um, I've seen some as high as 80. Yeah. And, and that's in a... I want to say Finland or Sweden again. Um, I know it was very different countries, but somewhere in that region where they a lot of good research on schizophrenia comes from yeah. three or four countries. And that's why I think I get confused on which one. So some of them have shown epidemiological studies of up to 80, but most of them are yeah, your spot the on twin there concordance. around 50. Yeah, twin concordance. And I think there's a, there is more out there that suggests heritability. In fact, that's what... Uh, um, the the fellow from UNC said is this heritability stuff looks like it's somewhere between 60 and 80 percent. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the polygenic risk scores, he says we can uh, count for about a third of that <laughs> genetically. So we're missing um, either high yield genes or, or high, low frequency high yield genes, so to speak, or high frequency genes that maybe we're just not understanding well the way they confer risk. He also, uh, they also spoke about um, uh, the repeats, right? The the uh, 
<laughs> the name of this just escaped me. The, the, they're so. repeated, but they're not red. I, is that the one you're thinking of? Uh, it's the... Hmm. <laughs> It'll come back to us in a few minutes. Um, so he talked about you know, this missing heritability. So we can only account for about 25% of heritability at the moment. Again, this isn't predictive enough yet, right? We don't have the ability to say that it will lead to this. We just know that there are genes that are associated with glutamate, genes associated with HLA types. There are genes associated with dopamine. There are genes associated with G-protein signaling. Um, but to then kind of say this is the cause of schizophrenia, we're a long ways away with genes. I think with that, there's also some on enzymes too, right? Yeah, I think that gets to the next thing, although I see Rhett looking up at me. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> Now I have to say something. No, um, I, uh, the, the only thought I had, because I was looking at this exact study that you're referencing, and um, this is a kind of a, maybe a silly third year thought that's just <laughs> occurring to me and everyone's going to be like, duh. But I, I'm starting to go, I wonder if like the diseases that have a cause, we've like found the cause. And then we're left with a bunch of diseases that are polygenic, right? Um, that just have really complex mechanisms. And um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder sometimes if, as researchers, I could just see people getting seduced by looking for this one cause, which we may never find. Um, I don't think that that's a dumb no, third year idea at all. I think, all. I think okay. that I think that that's it's very well supported. <laughs> that okay. fourth years also feel that way. Um, <laughs> I can't speak for any other level, but I I would have to agree with you. I think that that um, it gets much much more complex when we're looking at maybe these complex forms of pathology and and uh, maybe one of the best ways is just continuing to acquire information and hope hopefully finding you know some some. Uh, similarities there. I mean, in a sense, Koch's postulate apply here, right? We're, we're looking for a causative agent that consistently reproduces uh, the same set of findings. And I, was it, Jamin, was it you and I that talked about this earlier and uh, kind of how this fit in? And, and again, I think Koch's postulates have been modified a little bit. And uh, there's, there's obviously more to it than what I'm saying right now. But you know, cause and effect is a big deal. The challenge we have is we're looking at effect, right? And it's sort of like looking at how many, how many common cold viruses are there? We see the effect, but we don't always know the, the common cold virus vector that's causing those very, very similar overlapping kinds of symptoms. And so, so I, I guess that's kind of the way I think about this. And so the, the challenge we have is we're trying to figure out gosh, it looks like there might be a lot of different ways to have schizophrenia. Is there a common final pathway? Um, we, I think we used to think that with dopamine and then maybe glutamate, or maybe we thought about a couple of common final pathways, and then we thought about, let me say I thought about, uh, maybe how one regulated the other system and that somehow there was like this funnel effect of a lot of different ways that led to this common funnel. But I'm not even so sure that's kind of the way it works. I, I, I mean, it's so complicated that I'm just very, very grateful that there are these amazing researchers out there. Absolutely. I want to add one other very quick part to this too, and that is that um, the article that we read, Rhett, that we were looking at, 
I was surprised by how much cognition played a role in development of schizophrenia. So the, attrib the attributable part of schizophrenia that seemed to be relatable to cognition genes rather than schizophrenia genes was as high as anything, right? And, and, and I think that speaks to some of the risk factors for schizophrenia, which are the perinatal insults perhaps, perhaps some of the displacement through migration, uh, perhaps uh, urban living, uh, if the schools are not up to par. I mean, there are all sorts of things that, that now start to speak to the cognitive aspects of schizophrenia and maybe some of the things that we talked about yesterday in our discussion of uh, theory of the mind and some of the other ways that we think about how we see what we see in attribution, right? Yeah, and historically, I think those cognitive pieces has been what the research has been on. Um, which is not what a lot of the articles we we are going to discuss or we have been discussing go yeah. over. Um, but with that, I think I don't, I hadn't seen this till these articles. They were saying that IQ tends to be one to two standard deviations lower in our population that's been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and I thought that was pretty shocking. Yeah, there there seems to be something about IQ that is protective, right? And and that's. What was fascinating in this article from the polygenic risk scores mm -hmm. is that, you know, hey, there, there's something about the way we think that either protects us or doesn't protect us from schizophrenia. Okay. Um, so in 2001, there was this wonderful article saying that we would have blood tests any day now <laughs> uh, to diagnose schizophrenia. And then the, in 2011, there was another uh, company that said we're, we're on the verge of diagnosing schizophrenia. I, I can't seem to find the blood test that the FDA has approved to diagnose schizophrenia yet. Um, but there was some interesting stuff that I ran across. Any of you guys run across anything really interesting in blood tests like protein or um, inflammatory markers? Because I, I saw some very fascinating uh, studies on those. I saw a really cool one on tryptophan. Um, really? I don't know if I sent you that one, but they... And that's what I'm thinking about with the enzymes is they found that individuals with schizophrenia often had a lower tryptophan um, amount in their plasma. And then with MRI or MRS studies, they kind of showed the same thing. So it looks like they have a lower tryptophan in several parts of their brain. And so then tryptophan is eaten up by the, the MTHFR gene has some enzyme that it partially codes for, and it takes it to kynernin. I'm sure I'm saying that terribly <laughs> I'm not going to try and but correct it, because I know which one it. you're talking about. But anyways, they showed that this ratio of tryptophan to this KNE, or whatever that one is, is quite different in individuals with schizophrenia opposed to their control groups. So once again, it, it wasn't perfectly predictive, but they found this pretty strong correlation that... Yeah. You know, there's probably something to uh, this tryptophan being converted into what well, it, it eventually becomes. My serotonin. biochemist is, is Cam here. <laughs> so serotonin is one of the, the breakdown products and, and as a, you know, <clears throat> one of the main neurotransmitters in the brain, it really just harkens to that idea that there are several pathways, uh, whether it be dopaminergic or NMDA pathways, that, that kind of correlate with the presentation of schizophrenia. Yeah. I thought one other interesting kind of, it's not necessarily a, a blood test, so to speak, but inflammatory markers, one of the things that Jamin and I were talking about is this uh, interesting 
uh, presentation that, uh, that as you decrease inflammatory um, uh, consumption or consumption of inflammatory products or even using anti-inflammatories like prednisone uh, or prednisolone, I, mm-hmm. I can't remember, that that can also decrease uh, either risk and, and also help to kind of mitigate some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. I thought that, that was interesting. Yeah, I remember reading a very small case series, or maybe it was a small trial about 20 years ago, saying that ibuprofen mm-hmm. seemed to have some effect on uh, hallucinations. And anecdotally, we we see our patients on the unit, when they seem to be really struggling, they will ask for those PRN medications. I think they usually say that they're feeling some sort of pain, but but I've, I've started to wonder more and more if there's something about anti-inflammatories that have a, a beneficial effect on reducing auditory hallucinations. And I should add that, yeah, most of this is definitely anecdotal case studies. It's things that, that haven't been you know, vetted through peer review, uh, you know, clinical studies and things like that. Yeah, there, there is, I think there was some stuff published recently about people just feeling better taking anti-inflammatories. <laughs> and I, I remember looking at that and kind of scratching my head and thinking it's just good for what ails you, right? Sure. And then the study today that said, or, or that was just published that said that people that take uh, acetaminophen take more risks, right? Interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I can't keep up with all the, the data. <laughs> and I think that's uh, one of the challenges we have, right, is sorting through the information and saying, okay, let's suppose that this article is uh, a pretty good factual statement of what is, quote, real, end quote, <laughs> right? And, and how does this fit in a bigger picture, or are we building a house of cards? And, and one of the things I like a lot about some of the things we're talking about is the way that they're tying these diagnostic tests and biomarkers into a bigger picture. Um, One of the other very interesting conversations about inflammatory markers is there's a fair amount starting on the inflammatory markers, right? There was a, I think it was the article maybe you sent me or one that I found on my own, I don't recall. A group out of China looked at uh, patients from China with schizophrenia and uh, compared that to blood drawn from people without schizophrenia and uh, with, I think they used machine learning. Kind of, you know, that's that's just a black box to me. So, so we have the machine look at it and tell us what we were seeing, kind of stuff. That's the way I interpret it. I don't know what it means yet. And maybe another podcast when I have uh, uh, somebody that's a computer genius in here with us. Um, so they saw about 35 proteins that were downregulated compared to matched peers. Uh, they saw 42 proteins that were upregulated. And then they concluded two things that I couldn't quite put together, right? And one was, uh, we have 96% sensitivity using this assay, 94% specificity, which starts to get into a pretty good area, right? Um, and it, it makes you think more about the downstream effects, right? If the genes are, are somewhat predictive and we think that epigenetic effects are the are acting on this specific group of genes then I mean it makes some sort of sense that we're looking for proteins but then they said and by the way if we use this complement CF3 then we'll have the answer and I was like wait a minute where did that come from right <laughs> and so I, I, I couldn't quite piece all of that together they also talked about um, another article out of China uh, looked at MCP1 monocyte uh, chemokine protein 1 and uh, so I started looking at uh, chemokines versus cytokines and apparently the difference between 
helper cells uh, type 1, helper cells type 2, which I don't remember learning about um, in medical school almost 25 years ago now, <laughs> um, even though I'm sure I did, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, sort of the differential response rate and that there maybe there's this important balance between uh, T helper 1 and T helper 2 cells that keep the right balance of inflammation. Um, and, and so there's this big story out there that's developing along those lines. Um, and, and they actually looked at um, MCP1 and said, hey, if you have high MCP1 and you have schizophrenia and you're treated with risperidone, you'll probably respond. But if you're treated with olanzapine, you probably won't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, there's, there's still a lot more we need to learn about those kinds of things. But I would love to see our antipsychotic medications that are coming to market have some sort of predictive value. Hey, do this blood test and it'll give you a chance to know whether we're the right medication for your patient or not. And, and, and I think that would be the real hope of biomarkers, right? Because I, I can't tell you how many times I have to try three, four, five, six, seven different medications for somebody until I find something that's actually helpful. Right? And then by, by that point, we've stacked one or two on maybe. You don't know if you dare take one off. When you try and take one off, it doesn't seem to go well. So predictive biomarkers would be unbelievably helpful. Well, and I think about <clears throat> maybe the future of genomic medicine or, or proteomic medicine, and I think that would probably be like one of the first pillars that we could hopefully get to. Down the line, it would be awesome if we'd be able to see these things coming at a distance and be able to mitigate any harsh effects so that, as we were mentioning before, these people could be great taxpayers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but that they'd be, they'd be able to you know, be in society. But I think that hoping for that first pillar, I think, would be, would be pretty remarkable. That'd be a great first step. In a sense, saving uh, the best for last, Jamin, I think the original uh, idea about this was, hey, uh, what do you know about P50 uh, auditory evoked potentials? And you said, well, I know quite a bit about that, I think. <laughs> I don't think I said that. Um, <laughs> these were all new words for me. Right? I understand what a P is and a 50 is, but I hadn't seen them put together in that, that fashion. Um, so I think a lot of what we've been talking about actually ties in really well. I'm glad you put this kind of at the end of our conversation. Um, because the last article, and I apologize to everyone, it was the hardest article I've ever read in my life. But it also it's probably one of the few I'm going to read again and again because there are just so many different parts. I thought that fits our patients so perfectly. That explains what I'm seeing in a way that I, I have not had explained to me before. And so this last article um, is trying to kind of bring some of this bench research, this basic sciences, and match it up with the clinical things that we're seeing. And so... Uh, the big thing they start with is this auditory processing where you take individuals that have schizophrenia and a control group and then you play tones for them and see on an EEG what, what's different in these groups. And you know, one of the first things they found is the threshold for individuals with schizophrenia to say that's a different sound is quite a bit higher. Than, than their control group. So I'm going to stop you oh. for just a second there. This article is the Javits article. Yes. Right? So we're going to we're going to link this Javits article, the PubMed's uh, citation for this, into 
the podcast so that everybody can look at this. And and first of all, I, I just want to agree wholeheartedly. I, I can't believe just just even that initial description about schizophrenia, right? It, it just made me stop and think, whoever wrote this needs to be here teaching my students instead of me because it was so well written, right? It was it was just phenomenally worded. It was economical in, in its presentation. And then it got better from there. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. Everyone should at least go read the first couple paragraphs because I feel like it tells a story too of how did we get this dopamine model? How did we get this um, glutamate model? And then what are the weaknesses of both? And I think it is, you're, you know, like you used the word economical, but yeah, it is succinct and great. I mean, better than anything else I've ever read on those two, at least for me. So back to a quick summary of auditory evoked potentials. We can, on EEG, give a stimulus and see a reading on the EEG, right? So a click mm-hmm. or a tone. And then gating, I think you referred to this. So if we give a click twice, right, a first click, and then a second click, if it's the same click, our brains, generally speaking, say, yeah, heard that, don't need to put a lot of energy into that. So the evoked potential is lower, and that's called sensory gating. Does that sound right? Yeah. Am I getting that defined correctly? We talked about that in our mouse model on the previous podcast, that that's how they test when the primates or the mice do we think we have the right model? So that was the pre-pulse inhibition. So also a sensory gating model. Yeah. Okay. So so just to, to set the table again. So starting as far back I saw as 1969, there was a group what Roth and Copel demonstrated that you can give a first tone to somebody with schizophrenia and then a second tone or a click and that tone is like they've never heard the tone before, right? Mm-hmm. It's not gated in any way. And that's different than what you would see in the general population. Now, there's some important caveats with this, right? And that is that the time between the gating, or the time between the clicks or the tones seems to matter. And that um, maybe first-degree relatives of people with both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder still seem to have similar kinds of gating. Does mm-hmm. that sound right? Yeah. So, so this isn't sensitive for schizophrenia, and I'm not sure how specific it is, but it seems like it might be more specific for schizophrenia than it is sensitive for schizophrenia. I think that's fair to say. Um, I think with most of this uh, article and this gating and some of these auditory processing models, probably the value going forward is for the researchers to see how can we normalize, how can we improve, maybe improve is the wrong word, but normalize these responses. What are these medications to do? So, um, you know, like you said, we go through seven medications sometimes, right? What if we could give them a small dose, see their EEG and go, nope, that's not the right one. So I think that is where you're hoping for this research to go like you said, its sensitive and specificity is not not there. One of the things that I was intrigued by with your discussion as we were you know, talking about this very big topic, you you talked about how using this um, sensory gating idea, testing the sensory gating, gave insights into the models of schizophrenia. And I want you to talk about that a little bit more. So start with, um, if you wouldn't mind, um, maybe how sensory gating is important in terms of understanding 
the physiology, the neuroanatomy, and then maybe the, the, the what is it, what's the practical implication of this? And, and I think everybody was involved in reading that. So however you want to lead that, Jamin, kind of, why don't you start it? Yeah, so just the basics. We talked about that gating. Um, they did the tests on the threshold, meaning the change in pitch or tone. That was quite different. Then they tried time. That was different. Then they tried, what if we gave some distractors? So I found the same pattern. Um, so just to clarify, there were a million different variations of this test done, roughly a million. <laughs> and what happened over and over and over is that if somebody has schizophrenia, the sensory gating was affected and the second click or tone was heard the same way the first tone was. It reminds yes. me of church bells, sort of, right? Or, or the BYU bells. We're, we're near the BYU campus. Um, I think the first time I, I was on our state hospital campus here, I might have heard the bells. I might have heard them for a week after that. I can't remember hearing them in the last 10 years, <laughs> right? Those sounds disappear. Yeah. Sort of like that. Very, yeah, I think that's a, a great way. Now, the other, the other it. thing that's interesting about this is if you kind of take somebody with schizophrenia and say, hey, we're going to work on you recognizing this sound, it still doesn't affect it. The brain is hardwired, right? This mm -hmm. is a, a very, very, it, it's not, it doesn't change with practice. It doesn't change with changing the sounds. It doesn't change with changing the conditions. This is something that's fairly hardwired based on the neuroanatomy. Does that sound about right? Is that a fair summary of what you're saying? I think so. I think uh, the very last part of this kind of part of the article they kind of bring all that together to what you're talking about and I think that's the part that that Cam and I were talking about you know an hour ago that um, there it seems like the brain is interpreting every stimuli as a brand new stimuli and their pattern recognition is not helping them the way uh, the control groups would and this seems to play throughout every part of even your conversation Right, you don't think about it, but a conversation is a pattern, right? It's my turn to speak, and it's your turn to speak, and there's a lot of cues to tell us what we're supposed to do, and this model, I think, really matches what I see that a lot of these patients struggle with these basic interactions, and it's likely because their brain is interpreting these stimuli different, and it does not catch the pattern. Yeah. And I think even <clears throat> getting down to the neuroanatomical explanation for that is that the the uh, Javits article kind of gave some insight into the glutaminergic and GABAminergic uh, changes that took place. One thing I think the thing that I was most interested in is those the dendritic spines and the interconnections within the superficial and deep layer three of the neural cortex which are things that I haven't read since first year of medical school, so it's perfect. But uh, specifically, these pyramidal cells that, that they're using, and, uh, and it seems to be that there's a, a, a fairly significant reduction. I believe they said upwards of 27% reduction in these pyramidal uh, cells that could be the cause of this uh, being the, you know, kind of, at least leading to you know the possibility of this being the issue that they're not able to gate those signals and so they hear it as new every time and it really struck me that that even appeared on the gross level mm -hmm. um, just a quick section in the article on postmortems and they found the superior temporal gyrus showed atrophy consistently um, in schizophrenic patients patients so patients with schizophrenia had that 
um, on autopsy finding that correlated with the changes in the third what is it again? The uh, it was the, uh, the third, the superficial and deep third layer of the neocortex. Oh, the neocortex. Yeah. I, I remember my eyes glazing over thinking <laughs> I'll never be able to remember this. Um, yeah, so, so tying models together. And, and I think it ties more to glutamate than dopamine then. Very much so. Yeah, they, uh, they're a lot better. It seems like the models are much better with uh, the NMDA and the glutamate than the dopamine. It's interesting. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about uh, fencyclidine or PCP in a podcast recently with Cam. We talked about how um, back in the, I think the 1950s, we, you know, we were trying to find these articles by, is it Luby? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, Luby and uh, sort of the, the experiments they did with people and you kind of wonder if they could pull those off right now. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I'd have to look at those methods a little more closely. Um, so one of the things I thought was most interesting in some of the articles I ran across looking at auditory, uh, P50 auditory evoked potentials was the idea that perhaps this can be used as a biomarker. There seems to be, at least in, in one of the articles that I read that was summarizing some of the data, it looks like if you gate at uh, five, if you pulse at 500 milliseconds, which apparently is a longer pulse, um, our patients with schizophrenia really, it just, it never gets better at that 500 mark, right? So the time from the pulse matters quite a bit. But as you move towards 100 milliseconds for that second pulse, there seems to be improvement with our patients that take antipsychotic medication. But that improvement doesn't happen at the 500 millisecond, which, which I mean, makes you wonder quite a bit, right? And yet, it, there is one exception to that. <laughs> so if you're on any rotation with me, almost the first question I ask, the answer is? Clozapine. <laughs> there you go. So clozapine's always the answer, right? If uh, there's something where our lifespans are extended, so if we're talking about mortality outcomes, it's clozapine. And now if we're talking about normalization, of P50 auditory um, sensory gating, evoked potential sensory gating, the answer is also? Close there you go. <laughs> and also know the black box warnings, right? There you go. Do you guys remember those off the top of your head? Uh, let's see. A granulocytosis. Yeah, granulocytosis a granulocytosis is the big one, right? Uh, so, we have, so we have weekly heart. checks for clozapine for the first six months, every two weeks for the next six months, and then monthly after that. Myocarditis. Myocarditis. Is seizures one of those? Oh yeah, seizures oh, no. threshold. Yeah, that wasn't sketchy. I didn't know if that counts, but <laughs> is uh, um, cardiovascular events in the elder elderly one of those? Yeah. That's a class warning, right? And then I'm trying to remember, but is falls the fifth one? Oh man, I don't know. We might have to add that in out. at the end. Okay. So. Uh, very fascinating, guys. Um, anything else you want to add with the article that uh, the Javits article? I thought there was one other uh, really nice pearl in the Javits article, and that was trying to explain why these uh, patients struggle to decide, is this something coming from inside my head, or is this coming from outside? And if I remember right, it had something to do with they, uh, as your brain is processing these sounds, it processes thoughts very similar in the same system, 
And because of this change in threshold to decide outside inside might explain why they're unable to decide that came from inside my head, not a voice from outside. Yeah, that's interesting. I do know that there's a lot of discussion uh, when our, uh, I, that I've watched, and I've never fully understood the, the import of this. Um, many people will ask patients, do you hear the voices inside your head or outside of your head, right? Mm -hmm. And and I've never seen a trend that really stood out to me amongst patients that seem to fairly clearly and consistently have symptoms of schizophrenia, negative symptoms, disorganization symptoms, and so forth, right? So, so I've often wondered about that, but I have also wondered how is it that somebody that has thoughts so strongly hears these thoughts as something coming from outside, right? I mean, if you think about um, thoughts being confused with voices, right? Yeah. Now you had an interesting experiment with your spouse. Can I can I bring that up? Please do. All right. So uh, the idea essentially was, you know, the voices sometimes tell people to do things that seem very untoward, right? <laughs> yes. And uh, to set the table, I th I think, I I think you told your spouse perhaps that you have thoughts or she might have thoughts, just like the voices, but that maybe they're suppressed, right? Mm -hmm. And. She disagreed. For how long? Um, it was. I bet it was the next day that she said, "I've changed my mind." So uh, there are individuals that have um, a type of dementia that they don't have any impulse control. So I was explaining this to my wife, and she's like, "Well, I don't have any aggressive thoughts." So I mean, even if I didn't have these. You know, this impulse control, that wouldn't affect me. And I said, well, that's, I would like to challenge that. Because, <laughs> um, you know, just maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, sick and I don't know it. But I'm like, I have terrible thoughts. And I'm like, that's horrible. I hope that never happens. Just yesterday, I was with Dr. Roundy. <laughs> okay, go ahead with the story. So my wife was driving down the freeway. And, you know, she said a motorcycle cut her off or something. And her first thought is, I should swerve the wheel just a little bit. <laughs> and then immediately went, no, that's horrible. Who would ever do that? That would be awful. And that's what really changed. She said, oh, my goodness, if I didn't have that impulse control, right, I would be no different than the, some of these very sick individuals. So you're talking about, I think, frontotemporal dementia Correct. as having the, the lack of suppression of, of thought activity. Um, and I think the other part that we're trying to tie in here as well is that if you have thoughts like it's, it seems like everybody does, and it seems like they're coming from the outside and maybe become somehow very persuasive, right? Maybe the CIA is telling me I need to do these things or something along those lines. I have a special transmitter hooked up into my ear that I can hear these things from outside and I have to follow those, right? That, that changes the, the suppression of thoughts that might be, you know, uh, concerning and it, it does you know my patients do seem to get in trouble periodically for following command hallucinations and it makes some sort of sense that if the the suppression threshold on that auditory auditory evoked potential is changed to the point that it's difficult to recognize the difference between external and internal thoughts but that that starts to make a lot of sense on on why some of those pieces fit together yeah and only the only thing I also think is so important there is I think it's really important to catch these simil similar thoughts that we all have individually because it helps us humanize right this disease that you, know, you talked a lot about how to avoid burnout. I think the first week that I was here, 
And, you know, the, the key takeaway for me was, remember, these, you're treating sickness, right? The, you have to separate that from, this is probably a good person that has a very sick um, uh, issue here. And I think, you know, particularly about that impulse one, that's really eye-opening, that we're all having thoughts, well, that's terrible, I hope that never happens, right? And that can bring it to, I'm so glad that I don't have this sickness, how do we fix this fix this sickness opposed to be upset at why did this jerk show up in my ER, right? Why yeah. did they do that? Well, that, that's too simple of a way to look at it. It's the wrong way to look at it, I think. It doesn't really help. Yeah. It doesn't help the person that's struggling, right? Very few people show up to the emergency room because they're happy. <laughs> Very few people get locked up in a psychiatric unit because they want to. Um, when we focus on the illness rather than the behaviors, and blame the person for the behaviors when we blame the illness for the behaviors and focus on that. It really opens up some doorways for some of the most amazing recoveries that I've you know, been able to, to observe. And uh, you know, these, there are wonderful people underneath some exteriors across the world, right? Uh, my wife remembers that periodically dealing with me. I'm not sure about the wonderful part, but she gets the exterior, right? A bad day, a long call night, whatever. And she's much more forgiving because she recognizes that there's some things that are affecting the way I'm processing things. And again, our patients with schizophrenia don't have impulse control issues like the frontotemporal no. dementia the same way, but there's a difference in the way that those thoughts might be unsuppressed. There's a pathway that makes some sort of sense. Yeah. Yeah, what a great uh, great takeaway, and and I appreciate you adding that in, and I sincerely hope that um, one of the things that every student that comes into this rotation takes away is that if you do focus on the illness, no matter where you're at, it really makes things a lot more simple. It makes it a lot more enjoyable too. Absolutely. Uh, other other pearls from either the Javits article or from reading about both biomarkers and maybe diagnostic tests for schizophrenia. And again, we just scratched the surface on this one. It seems like there's a lot out there and it's difficult to kind of bring it all together. So take homes from everybody. Jamin, anything else? Well, actually, I'll come back to you last since this is last word for you. Uh, Rhett, go ahead. Well, I, I came away with, you know, the, all these exciting avenues of research. Um, and then, of course, I come in and I talk to Dr. Roundy and I see just this kind of, reaction of like, well, I've been hearing this for 30 years now, 20 years now. <laughs> and so I have to check myself again as a third year medical student go, okay, well, I guess sometimes these things don't pan out. Um, but hopefully some of the research, especially like we were talking about in the Javits article, uh, it'd be really, really cool if, um, if we were able to find biomarkers or even a common neurophysiological pathway. Um, yeah. Something something like that would be amazing and, and potentially revolutionary. I didn't mean to crush your hope, by the way. <laughs> um, I do think, um, just, just to maybe comment a little bit on that, I, I, there, there's an Asimov article that Jamin and I shared that talks about more right, I think is kind of the general takeaway, that uh, at one point we thought the universe, or the, the Earth was the center of the universe, that the Earth was flat, those kinds of things. We still don't understand uh, the universe completely, but we're more correct about it than we were before. Yeah. And I do think that even though I've been hearing about P50 auditory processing since I started in, in my residency program, it, it seems like what I'm hearing now ties things together more completely all the time, right? There's a better coherence between the, the, the facts that were out there 
and the the narrative that can now be built around the facts. It seems like they're coming together in a way that includes a lot of those seeming facts that have been hanging out there without you know, an inclusive narrative. So so I'm hopeful about it. Um, the blood test, I, I, I'm a little more hopeful now than I was a decade ago, but or maybe I'm less hopeful now than I was a decade <laughs> ago and, and 20 years ago. Um, but but it does feel like uh, we're, we're closing in on things that make more sense and more accurate, fit the bigger picture better, and hopefully we get there. Yeah, so sorry about crushing your hope. <laughs> it'll, it'll come back. Good. Cam? Uh, I, I would just say that uh, I always, that one of the main benefits of this rotation is being able to just kind of sit back and stand in awe. I think that you give us that opportunity as students and give us a chance to kind of slow down and, and observe. Uh, different things through our research and preparing for these podcasts and so uh, the difference between you know clinical medicine and and PhD medicine can be quite different sometimes but as we've seen today there is some corollary pearls that we can take from it but uh, as as far as high yield topics for boards um, you know not not too many that I can think of from this but it's always great to just sit back and just kind of bask in the complexity of what we get to throw ourselves into every day, and it is just awesome. So, I love that, but I am going to say that even though this was an hour-long podcast, <laughs> high yield about uh, Please, difference between yeah. schizophrenia, brief psychotic episode, and um, schizophreniform, schizophreniform, right? Schizophreniform and the diagnosis, diagnosis of, sch- of schizophrenia, schizophrenia. Yeah. and also some information around um, clozapine and the blood testing. And I would also add that um, I I seem to see a lot of questions, I recall questions about seasonal component and uh, environmental um, risk factors. And I think we actually kind of ran through those very quickly, tying those into this this lack of correlation between our polygenic risk score and the ability to that what is it the heritability gap or the missing heritability right mm-hmm. and how those things might might play in so so i'm gonna say yes low yield for the hours time but there are a couple of Still pearls in there i hope for sure yeah, yeah i hope so <laughs> jamin uh your last words before we do your evaluation <laughs> <laughs> so uh i love simple one-liner quotes so i'm going to end with that because i think it it sums up a lot of this. So one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes is, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> and so I think if you take that kind of thought of, look, we're, this is the best knowledge we can find. If you stop and think, okay, we've figured it out, right? you're going to be harming a lot of patients <laughs> unnecessarily. But if you continually go, well, what is it that I don't know? What is it that I'm missing? Well, I'm going to follow that for 10, 20 years, hoping that it pans out. Then I think you'll um, you'll be doing the right thing by your patients. Wow, you just like totally spurred an idea for a great podcast for follow-up. <laughs> On that note, guys, thank you so much for participating in the longest podcast yet. Team out. Team, Team out. out. <laughs>